welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that can no longer handle the shame of a butt-turned-blue by poorly dyed denim. You know what we're talking about. I'm your host, Amanda. Today we're going to be discussing the world of denim with my friend Michelle. She's a highly experienced denim designer. Chances are you've worn something she's worked on over the years. That's how experienced she is. Jeans are the most all-American garment you can wear. They were invented by Jacob Davis and Levi Strauss, that name sounds familiar, doesn't it, in 1873 when Davis made a pair of pants out of denim after a customer requested a sturdy pair of pants. The denim he used to make them was bought from Levi Strauss, and thus history was made. Denim's blue, right? I mean, yes, I know. It comes in red, it comes in white, it comes in pink, I do kind of have a soft spot for a pink jean. But in its most iconic incarnation, denim is blue. And it gets its signature blue color from indigo. White cotton is woven with indigo dyed cotton. When you close your eyes, you can kind of picture that, how it's not like a totally solid blue, right? There's that white in there too. Way back in the days of yore, really probably before Levi Strauss was selling denim, indigo dye was extracted from a plant but it's been synthesized in a lab since the late 1800s. And since then, more than 50,000 tons of indigo dye are made and used annually. So here's the thing about indigo. One, it smells terrible. Like, I cannot even begin to describe the horrible smell. And two, it's incredibly toxic. Like, you might not want to, oh, I don't know, swim in a river containing it, except, well... It's long been an incredibly dark industry joke that you can tell the cities in the world that are manufacturing denim because the rivers have been dyed a dark blue. And yeah, I agree. It's not funny. But it is true. You can see it on Google Earth photos. Wash and dye houses, often poorly regulated, are releasing their spent dye water into the rivers. Here's a quote from a Greenpeace article that just, oh, just like, got me in the gut. Villagers nearby say that the dirty, fetid river is no longer fit for drinking or laundry. Fish no longer live in the river. People living near the river complain that they must frequently endure the stench from the wastewater, and when the river overflows, their yards and homes are flooded by wastewater. Because guess what? (laughs) Indigo should not be in our rivers. It's extra slow to decompose, darkens river water as i've said you can see it from space basically so it darkens the water so much that flora and fauna as in plants and animals are starved of sunlight and oxygen and eventually i mean you know those rivers don't just sit there it makes its way out into our oceans and it sort of spreads throughout the world and gets into our food chain that's not the end of your jeans journey, right? They don't just get dyed blue and then stuffed in a box and they come to you. No, each pair undergoes all sorts of treatment to break them in, to give them a distressed vintage appearance. And it wasn't always that way. But the iconic stonewash jean appeared in the 70s, introduced by Francois Jabot. And I remember some fancy girls at my school in the 80s were wearing jabots. Maybe your school did too. I don't know. They weren't the most popular jean at my school, but they had their moments. This is a quote from him. 
it took 40 years before we realized what we made and what we did was wrong. Once again, Jabot is a pioneer of the denim industry, and he's referring to potassium spray, which they began to apply in the 1970s to create these like stonewashed and then later acid-washed jeans. He continues by saying, if people knew that the spraying of potassium on your jeans to give you that acid-washed look was killing the guy doing the spraying, would you still want that look? I don't think the customer is aware of what is happening abroad. We have to change the process of making jeans and brands have to be willing to invest because we are destroying the planet. And he's right. There are concerns that exposure to indigo and these acid sprays are causing infertility and other health issues amongst the people working in the dye and wash houses and also in the communities around them. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in our interview with Michelle. I have a bunch more information in there. Another process used to treat denim is sandblasting. And it's it's what it sounds like. Denim is hit with sand to soften and break down the denim. So basically... They're just blasting it with sand, right? The name is what it is. And fine dust and sand particles can lodge in the worker's lungs, causing silicosis and lead to death. It's basically an occupational asthma. There are a lot of different forms of this, and we talk in the episode with Michelle about a form that comes from the cotton mills as well. There's more coming about that. So yeah, denim is brutal. You know, The irony is not lost on me that this all-American garment, the fabric that practically defines a nation, is so destructive to our world. But it doesn't have to be. And once again, I'm not here to shame your denim-loving lifestyle. I'm here to educate you so you can make better decisions about the jeans you buy and how you care for them. I want you to ask yourself, how many pairs do I actually need? What are the right genes for me? As G.I. Joe once famously said, knowing is half the battle. I watched that show a lot with my brother when we were kids. (laughs) Today's conversation is part one of two with Michelle. We had so much to talk about. It was fascinating to me because while I know some stuff about denim as a buyer, I don't really know that much. It's a very specific section of the industry. Today, we're going to talk about how denim gets made. What's the process? How and why does it receive all of this treatment? When did this start? It's a pretty fascinating story. And like I said, most of it was new to me. Michelle is a mega super expert in this area. It's an area of fashion that has been a lifelong love for her. And she too grapples with the environmental impact. In our next episode, we'll talk more about the difference between inexpensive jeans and so-called premium denim. We'll look at the path forward into terms of sustainability, and we'll talk about, you know, how can you be a more responsible consumer? So yes, there's a lot of doom and gloom in today's episode, but it's also super interesting, especially if you wear jeans. And honestly, even if you never wear jeans like me, just learning something new about this big thing that happens in the world that you didn't know about is so fascinating. All right, let's get started. Today, we're going to be spending some time with Michelle, who is an expert in all things denim. We work together at Nasty Gal, which is probably not a surprise to anyone who's been listening so far, since it's been primarily 
the greatest faces of Nasty Gal on this podcast. Michelle, I'm going to tell you my first memory of you at Nasty Gal. <laughs> it's before we moved to the other end of the office, which is a whole other story. Uh, so it was way back in the old – remember that? Oh, uh, okay. yeah. You came dark over – <laughs> You came over to my pod to talk to someone about something and you started telling a story about some like neighbors or something you had growing up who had a round bed in their basement. Is this ring a bell to you? <laughs> oh my God. Um, yes, it does. And it wasn't neighbors. It was, oh God, this is like a terrible, like really long story. Uh, it wasn't neighbors. It was like a, like when I was like a teenager, like a friend of mine had, uh, this is a great icebreaker. A friend of mine like, picked up a, um, I mean, for like lack of a better term, like a carny, like a carnival worker at the Orange Oh my God. Fair. Okay. Are you remembering this now? <laughs> yes. Cause I'm now thinking at first I was like, how did that story start? And I that? thought it was because we were talking about rent beds, which would just be random. And I'm realizing no, mm -hmm. is because we were talking about Carney. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's, that must have been that. She picked up this random guy and like we were teenagers and she at some point begged me to go over to his house with her and, you know, a couple other people. And it turned out that his grandparents were swingers and the whole house was like crazy decked out in like, it just looked like yes. 1972 like at a bad acid trip and there was just like shag carpet on like everything, probably even the walls. And they had like round beds and like round couches and like everything was round and like very like pregnant and like just terrifying. It was like a terrifying experience that I'm, I'm very, very proud to escape from. <laughs> so, so yeah. Wow. That's like, I don't even remember talking about that. Like half of the, half of working at Nasty Gal, I've like blocked out. So I just don't even remember like talking about that at all. I mean, I, I'm sure I did, but like I don't remember it. I just remember being like, okay, this girl's cool and I want to be friends with her because most of the girls here are not nice oh, and yeah. would never have a good story like that. I mean, you know, like there's a special spirit to certain people at Nasty Gal, I think. And, and like once you found your people, it's like I think to this day they're the people that I most strongly identify with as like those friends that I made while I was at Nasty Gal because it was like such an amazing, inspiring, smart, like really smart group of women. Oh, yeah. It wasn't everyone. Wasn't everyone. <laughs> but. but like the people that I became friends with while I was there are still my good friends and my favorite people to talk to. Yes. And just like some of the most yeah. talented people I've met in my entire career. And I've worked a lot of places. Like it's the nasty gal people yeah, that I keep coming back to you for the podcast because everybody was so good at what they do. You know? Yeah, they like killed totally it. Killed There's it. just like a bunch of rock stars there. Totally, totally. Like all the time, man. Especially like in the beginning, I always felt like really like I was like special for being able to be there. Like it was a very special moment in kind of like the history of like what was going on in fashion, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like Nasty Gal was like this this company that kind of really felt like it was going to take over. And the very least, it felt like it was going to like change and take over kind of the retail industry and, and the way that we shop for clothes. And, you know, and then a larger part of that was it felt like it was going to take over the world. Sadly, that wasn't the case, but that there was a vibe like that for a while. It was just almost like this Silicon Valley type startup, but with a bunch of women, which um, is crazy. It's hard for me to articulate this, but there was something about Nasty Gal that no no one else was capturing. Like 
tons of brands and retailers aspired to hit mm-hmm. that sort of like nerve that Nasty Gal was hitting for consumers, but they just never got there. And then yeah, man. when Nasty Gal went under, there's been nothing like mm-hmm. that since. Like there just hasn't been and people I'm sure have tried to step mm-hmm. in and replace them. Like I'm I feel like to a certain extent, like Fashion Nova tries to do that. Maybe Dolls Kill because there's so many former Nasty Gal people there, but yeah. neither of those are right. No. They're not aspirational. No. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was like a really kind of like special environment, I think, that was happening and was being cultivated. And I think like part of that was the conversation that we were constantly kind of engaging with, with our customers and that they were engaging with back with, with us. And, you know, there was like just like this wealth of kind of information and like almost like trust that was going back and forth between us and them like all the time. And, and I don't think that a lot of people engage the way that the Nasty Gal did team. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There was just mm-hmm. something that about the connectivity of it that you felt it when you were there. And I just, like you said, I just, I don't feel it with these other brands that are kind of trying to come in and take the space. It just, it's something that comes with like, I don't know, maybe being honest. A couple of people I can think of off the top of my head, you know, like Ty from Intentionally Blank, like he does an amazing job with, with kind of connecting with his customers and with his brand. It's so strange, but like Ty is this person that ties together (laughs) so many brands and consumers and like coworkers from my life because, you know, think about like him at Jeffrey Campbell and then being at Soulstruck and Mm -hmm. we did a lot of business with him at Nasty Gal and like he understands customers more than anybody else does, I think. I agree. And, you know, and, the, and that's kind of that vibe that I'm talking about is he really kind of gets it and he gets that it is a privilege to have customers. Mm-hmm. It's a privilege to have people buy from you and support you. And I think that he kind of understands that and and in his honesty about the brand and, you know, he shares a lot of himself. And I think that in the beginning, Nasty Gal was similar to that. He had a, like a figurehead that, that did really much the same thing. And, you know, she really did a great job job of connecting to her customers and giving mm-hmm. this like kind of personal attention and personal feel there is a void in that and that people miss that yeah I I totally agree I think you've nailed it there because like none of these brands that have tried to step in and take on some of those nasty old customers who are sort of like left behind none of those brands are led by someone who you think of as like a person you know like who runs fashion nova I have no idea right have, yeah. probably some men right who knows you know? Probably some men, and I, you know, to be honest, I really don't want to know them. <laughs> I'm just like, no, I'm good. <laughs> who knows who runs that brand? You know, who knows who runs Boohoo? Who knows who, you know, Asos? Yeah. It's just like a group of people instead of having a kind of like a figurehead right. and someone that you can like look to to be like, I identify with that person. Like that person's cool or – you know, whatever it is, however you're making your decision to buy product. When I met you at Nastgal, you were our denim designer. Uh, you've got tons of denim experience. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've done, what you're doing, what you want to do? Sure. I have an extensive background in denim. It's something that I've loved, like loved with like a passion since I was probably a teenager. I, I probably didn't know that I was obsessed with it then, but I was. 
I would scour kind of like thrift stores and I was always looking at vintage 501s and I ended up dating someone that had a, a vintage 501 business and, you know, I kind of learned a lot about like real vintage versus like not real vintage and just got really transfixed by these like old pieces of clothing and, and like their stories and why they looked so different from anything on the market and like why they look so much cooler and better and, you know, like everything about them was just superior to me. <laughs> and, you know, I, went, I ended up going to like design school and graduated and just kind of like instantly found my niche working in denim, which by the way, I had no idea that that even existed. <laughs> like zero idea that that was like a thing. That's a recurring theme here with every single guest is that no one knew that the job they have had, like the job they've built a career out of was a job that someone could have. <laughs> Yeah. Like, what is that? Like, what do you mean? Like they wash jeans? Like, I I mean, like even like being in school, like I had no idea that that happened, you know, because like they just don't teach you that. I mean, they do now, but when I was in school and like the prehistoric times, like they for sure didn't. So like, I mean, like, I don't even think we had like Illustrator yet. (laughs) Oh my God. um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, I graduated in like 2000. So I've had like a very long career and I started at the bottom. And I worked for companies that kind of specialized in denim and garment dye and basically anything that I like to kind of call like architecture, like stuff that's fitted to your body, mm-hmm. stuff that like takes like a lot of, I don't know, expertise in like getting right. Not that saying a dress isn't expertise because it is, it's just a different sort of expertise. Denim is something that I initially was probably drawn to on the design end because it's just it's just this really amazing blank canvas that you can do anything to. And so starting as like an assistant, I kind of got really hands-on and I would go to the denim wash houses and I would watch the guys treat all these jeans and I just asked a lot of questions. And I think it was because of that and because of my interest in it, they really shared with me and I was always really open with them about like what I wanted to do and what I was looking to achieve. And in return, they were really open with me and how they were processing things. And and because of that hands-on approach, I just, and because of my love of it, I, I got really good at it. One of the things that I'm known for now is is just like this really kind of authentic vintage wash. So like that's kind of like been my goal to to achieve that throughout my career is is to to make a new pair of jeans look like it's vintage to realistically look like it's vintage and authentic. You know, I've worked for all kinds of companies. You know, now I consult. My kind of career has gone in all kinds of different directions. Now at this point, I've always had this really love-hate relationship with, I think, fashion and and my career in general. Um, I've always been really thankful for my career and my success. And there are things that I love, I love so much about what I do and the creative aspects of it. But, you know, I think that the older I got and the, the higher my positions were and the more competitive it got and just kind of the more traveling I did, the more things that I saw, you know, there are issues that I have with our industry, like really big issues that concern me. And, you know, there are a lot of issues that you talk about on the podcast and, you know, that we've talked about just off air in general. And, you know, for me, it just got to the point where I think the the cons started outweighing the pros. And last year I started looking at transitioning 
out of the fashion industry and to kind of moving into something that I felt a little bit better about doing. I still love certain aspects of it and I still do consult on a, on a limited basis, but, you know, I try to do that with brands that I really feel good about mm-hmm. working with, which is few and far between these days, for sure. It is. It is. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say that I never wear jeans, so I don't know that much about denim and I, when, <laughs> when we when we were preparing for this episode, like between all the stuff you and I talked about and all the things I read, my feelings about denim are possibly even more complicated than they were before. You know, just knowing yeah. that this, and we're going to go into this, but this core staple of like Americana of what it is to be an American, it's like the all American mm-hmm. garment is so problematic. It's really problematic. I mean, and and it's coming from someone that like, I love it. Like it is my first love. I am super passionate about it. I have probably like, like no joke, probably like 300 pairs of vintage jeans. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like, and jackets and like all other stuff on top of it. I love it. It's a big deal for me to say like, I'm, you know, in the process of kind of transitioning away from it because there's so many things about it that I'm passionate about and that I love. It's just really problematic. (laughs) So I'm going to give some not so fun facts about denim. As I mentioned, denim is a really big deal. I think Mm -hmm. like not just in the United States, like worldwide, but I was kind of shocked by some of the statistics. More than 364 million pairs of women's jeans were purchased between February 2018 and February 2019. It was more than $16 billion in sales. About 6 billion pairs of jeans are made worldwide each year. I mean, that's so many jeans. I'm assuming jeans are going to be a little less of a big deal this year because as you and I talked about offline – Everyone's just wearing sweatpants and depression clothes right now, but uh, <laughs> literally something very stretchy. Like literally sweatpants all day, every day. But in a, in a normal year when we're not all mm-hmm. in our despair clothes, the average American buys four pairs of jeans per year. Mm-hmm. And then you think about someone like me who doesn't buy any. So that means someone else is buying eight and then you know somehow Michelle ends up with 900 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally end up with like 900 pairs of jeans. <laughs> Sorry. You're picking up the slack for the rest of us, which I really appreciate. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> so as we've already touched on, and we're going to unpack this a ton, denim is anything but, quote, sustainable yeah. in its current incarnation. <laughs> no. It's like, yeah, it's the understatement <laughs> no. of the year. So first yeah. off, growing the cotton to make denim, which spoiler alert, (laughs) denim is made of cotton. (laughs) Not everybody knows that. You might be like, I don't know. What is denim? I, you know, is it made of cauliflower? I don't know. Well, denim is made of cotton. Mm -hmm. The cotton cultivation and processing required for one and a half pounds of cotton, that act requires 1,500 gallons of water. And that 1,500 gallons mm-hmm. of water grows enough cotton to produce one pair of jeans. Yeah, it's 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 really crazy when you talk about it like that. I know. I was trying to envision 1,500 gallons of water, and I'm assuming that would be about like a small swimming pool, mm-hmm. you know, Probably. in the ground, maybe like a kidney-shaped one, you know? Like a cute 1955 one, yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. So, wow, that's a lot of water. And that's not the end of the problem. <laughs> no, no, it's really not. And like we, we're not even talking about like if you wanted to grow organic cotton, which takes even more water. Yeah, yeah. And so 
So cotton, as we mentioned, is the main ingredient of denim. When we get into like stretchy jeans, there's some other problematic stuff going on. But in just standard denim, 16% of the total pesticides used worldwide are used on cotton. Like cotton is challenging to grow, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, this cotton is grown and then it's turned into the fabric. It turns out working in a textile factory really sucks. It super sucks. You visited some, right? You were telling me about that. Yeah, it's it's really crazy, especially the ones that I visited in China, you know, because, you know, as I said before, I've kind of traveled all over the world in doing what I'm doing. You know, it's like I've gone to factories in China and, and Vietnam, and, and that's part of the thing that's been like really eye-opening for me. And, you know, so when you go to these like textile factories, there's these massive like hanging sheets of plastic that kind of like divide off portions of the manufacturing floor. So like where they're like spinning the cotton and, you know, it's like everything is kind of like coming off in like fluffs. And so that's why they have these uh, dividers up so that not all the the little fibers that are flowing off of the cotton kind of like escape and go into these other like quote unquote like clean areas. So when you go into through these big plastic barriers, you know, it's like you really need to have on a mask because imagine if you didn't, all of these like little fibers are like roaming in the air and it's like some of them you can see and some of them you can't see. You're just walking into like this. And especially if it's like already in the indigo phase, then you're also breathing in cotton that's like indigo, which is also like another like kind of like toxic thing. So not everyone wears masks though, as oh. I, I as I noticed when I was there, you know, on the numerous occasions that I've been to these types of textile factories is that, you know, a lot of the workers aren't wearing masks. And I and I have to stop and think, like, what is that doing to their respiratory systems? Like, what does that do to them down the line, you know? And I remember raising these questions to the factory owners, and I never really got a straight answer. I'm sure they just, they didn't want to even be bothered with talking to me about it. Also, it doesn't help that I'm a woman questioning them in the middle of, like, you know, communist China. Well, I remember reading at some point along the line some sort of book that was set in the era of the United States when a lot of textiles were made here, which they're not anymore. And I remember the thing that whatever this book is that I can't remember touched on was cotton lung, which is what happens from inhaling all of these fabric fibers as they're making the textiles. And it's it's like mm-hmm. an occupational asthma. It's It's not dissimilar to when you talk about people getting black lung from working in a coal mine. Basically, it's just bad to mm-hmm. inhale a lot of anything, you know? Right. This kind of occupational asthma will ruin your life, yeah. will prevent you from being able to be active or feel good and make you more vulnerable to illnesses and you know, make your life shorter. So people should wear masks. God, that makes me so mm-hmm. mad. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, then you know, maybe they do now. Maybe they don't. Oh. I don't know, you know, but I know then they weren't, so – Or the majority of people that were working in these factories weren't. They were just kind of like cruising around. That's so so gross. I know. Once you've made the fabric, you also have to think about dyeing and washing, which every pair of denim experiences to one extent or another. And that uses even more water, and it can actually expose workers to toxic chemicals and pollute the water supply. So distressed jeans in particular, which I feel like are never going out of style now, require several washes. Yeah, we're never going back to the clean kind. So they require several washes and Mm -hmm. highly toxic chemicals. And I read this article that was just devastating about Greenpeace testing the outflows. So that's the water that is like expelled from the factory near dyeing and finishing facilities in the top denim producing towns in Asia. And they found five heavy metals. Heavy metals are bad news. 
cadmium, chromium, mercury, lead, copper, they found these heavy metals in 17 out of 21 water and sediment samples. And these chemicals, I mean, we know about mercury, we know about lead. Well, all of these lead to various cancers and neurological issues. And it's important to remember that these chemicals just don't like stay in the river chilling out for the rest of the time. The rivers transport them to the oceans where they spread across the world and they get into all of the sea life and the food supply that we eat from the ocean. I mean, it's it's a huge cost for a pair of jeans. So Michelle, you were telling me that you've mm-hmm. you've seen some of this, like you've seen these like blue rivers outside factories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in certain towns and provinces, I mean, some of the factories I visited were super on the level and the wash houses that I went to in China were super on the level and they had every single kind of system in place where they were like recycling water and, you know, it's like that stuff does happen. But, you know, much more common is what Amanda was just talking about with, you know, it's like you'd go to the the wash facility and then you look outside and there's just like this like blue river that's like all the runoff that's coming out of the back of this facility and just, you know, into like the water supply, into like a creek uh. bed. And I just remember just being so just just staring at it one day, I, you know, being in, I don't even remember whether I was in Guangzhou or I think I was somewhere outside of Guangzhou and it was like Shenzhen because that's like a really big denim hub. But I just remember thinking, God, this is so terrible. And I can't imagine this being like my work environment. I can't imagine mm-hmm. this being like my backyard. Like what about the people that live in these surrounding communities that that live near this river? Like what is this doing to them? And it was something that really, really affected me. But I continue to think about until this day is is just kind of like the state of the environmental laws that are in a lot of these countries where we have especially less expensive things manufactured. The thing about getting something manufactured in the United States is that we do have environmental laws in place. They might not be the best all the time. They might not be the greatest. And it doesn't mean that that companies don't do things to skirt them. But we do have these kind of stop gaps in place here. It's just not the same in other countries especially other countries that, you know, are considered quote unquote third world and that are vying for our business to boost their economy. We kind of, as a, as a society, you know, when we're constantly asking for cheaper and cheaper things, which is why we go and produce in these other areas, you kind of have to wonder, am I profiting off of someone else's misery? Yeah, yeah. We're going to get into this later, but when you and I were preparing for this episode, you said something that just really resonated with me when you said that people would come to you and say like, what's wrong with buying $20 jeans at Walmart? And you said when you buy that, you're basically paying for someone else's misery. Yeah, you are. You know, and I, and I and I hate to say that because like I, I you know, I 100% understand that that being able to purchase something is a privilege. Like, you know, being able to purchase something that's more expensive is a is a privilege that not everyone mm-hmm. has. And I think that, you know, there's certainly been times in in my life where I've 100% bought a $20 pair of jeans at Walmart because that's what I could afford. And one of the things that I really love about this podcast is that, again, there is no judgment about buying that. It's just like, these are the facts behind it. Like, this is why it's so cheap because a lot of people don't understand why it's so cheap. 
And this is why, because, you know, of all of these things that we're going to talk about, it's like, this is why this is so cheap. And this is why these other things are so expensive, Mm -hmm. livable wage, like environmental standards, like that's, that's a big part of like the package of what you pay for. Right, right. To be honest, way back in the day when my daughter was a baby and we were super fucking broke, I could barely afford anything. I needed jeans because I would ride my bike to and from work every day take her on my bike to daycare every day in you know living in Portland mm-hmm. Oregon where it was raining like 9 months out of 12 I had to wear jeans and so like always always right so every 6 months I I would I would get to splurge by going to Fred Meyer which is a grocery store that also sells clothes <laughs> So you can already you're already Amazing. getting an idea of like the assortment there, right? It's like I know. It's like if it's good. It's like if a grocery store in Coles had a baby, it would be Fred Meyer. And so they Amazing. they had these jeans in the women's department that were Levi's that were $38. They were like 513s or something like that. I mean, this was the early odds. Mm-hmm. So they were like a low-rise boot cut or something so gross. Uh, I'm sure. It's so good. <laughs> and, I wish we still had them. And they had like a, a washed down black. So it wasn't like a totally solid black. Right. Like its wear looked a little bit better. And I, so every six months I could go buy a pair of those and wear them every day until the butt and the crotch blew out from riding my bike everywhere. And then I get to go buy another pair. And so <laughs> and you get to like, buy another pair. <clears throat> yeah, like it would have been amazing if so, if I had been able to buy a pair of $300 rigid denim jeans that would last me a decade instead of this every six month right. ritual of going to Fred Meyer. But like when you're poor, you're poor. Yeah. I mean, and you know, I, I grew up very similarly. So, you know, and I put myself through college and I ate a lot of Top Ramen if I ate. <laughs> and, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, it's like, and that's probably where, you know, that was one of the reasons why I bought a lot of like secondhand and a lot of vintage was because it was so much cheaper. And especially back in, you know, back in the, you know, early aughts, it was just mm-hmm. it was like buying a vintage pair of Levi's was, you know, 501s was, was really cheap compared to, you know, I could get a pair of for like less than 30 bucks, you know, probably 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was a lifesaver to me at that time, as opposed to like going in and buying a new pair of jeans for whatever it was at that time. I mean, I think like at some point, I think like seven, you know, designer jeans came on the scene and like seven, you know, seven jeans, seven for all mankind were like, I don't know, like $150 or something. Yes. I think they were 150 I kind of remember that. And it's funny to still be working in the in the fashion industry and realize now those jeans are like 250 <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's crazy. I mean, like the inflation yeah. that they've gone through. Yeah. Yeah. Jeans uh-huh. specifically. I feel like – we're going to talk about this, but I feel like the price point divide in denim is more extreme than any other category of clothing I can think of. It really is. Yeah. Because you can get these $20 jeans. You can probably get $10 jeans actually that are brand new. You probably can. You can get $500 jeans. Yeah. I mean, it's like so wide, yeah. right? But I think that I think that we talk about this because, you know, again, it's like, you know, both you and I have been in the situation where we could not afford to buy anything expensive and, you know, we're buying secondhand and we're, you know, so it's just, it's not that there's like any sort of like judgment on this kind of stuff. It's just, it's just like, Hey, let's like be educated and maybe this will just tell you another way. Or like a lot of people have no idea. Right. Especially like my family. When I talk about this stuff to my family, they have like no idea that this is happening. Like they're just like, what? You know? And, and, 
and they just oh, like they just stare at me like I'm totally like speaking not. another language. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like that's why this is like, oh yeah, I know. This is why this is so expensive, and that's why this is so cheap, and blah blah blah. And you know, it's just a point of educating people. And then you can make your choice. You can make your own choices. I mean, I make choices, you know, daily. It's just you just have to kind of like weigh them out. Like, well, well. Like, I know this, like, isn't, like, the 100%, like, but I, got, I don't really have a choice right now, so. Right, right. I mean, I think if I had known back then all of the stuff I've just learned from you about denim and we're about to share with the audience, I probably would have either because I'm really crunchy and very guilty in my heart about everything all the time. I would have either made those jeans last longer by patching them or taking mm-hmm. better care of them or, like, I, I, I don't even being, – being gentler on the crotch <laughs> – <laughs> or right. I or I would have loaded Dylan up on the back of the bike and we would have gone to like every thrift store in town until I could have found a pair. Right. Yeah. I think there are alternatives if when you know. When you know you can when make you know, better yeah. decisions. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not Yeah, you totally can. I'm in no way like we're gonna get into this later, but I am no way saying if you're not out there spending three hundred dollars in your jeans, then you should go fuck yourself. Cause that's not true. And I am not either. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> like neither of us are doing that. Like I, yeah. I am not spending three hundred dollars on jeans. No. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, woo. Let's 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 get back to the horror show of making denim. Yeah, it's just a. It's it really is the American horror story. Almost all the denim that's out there, whether it's like jeans, shorts, jacket, they have this wearing associated with them. And this is accomplished with really gross chemicals. Mm-hmm. I'm hopefully going to be able to pronounce this correctly, mm-hmm. but it's potassium permanganate. Oh, you did a great job. Yep. So this highlights the sandblasting and it is used on just about every pair of jeans, which I learned from Michelle because I just assumed we were only seeing this on like acid wash or like severely distressed stuff, but Mm -hmm. actually it's everything. And it's applied with a sponge or a spray. It can also be dipped on rags and thrown in the wash cycle. I think you told me this, Michelle, that if it's, if anything is called Mm -hmm. a vintage wash, automatically there's a bunch of this involved. Yeah. Like I would say like, uh, like there's a 99.9% chance that it has potassium on it. The full name, yes, is potassium permanganate, but it's very difficult to pronounce. Even I can barely pronounce <laughs> it and I've been dealing with it for a very long time. So I just call it potassium or a PP, PP spray or PP. Okay. Well, I like PP. Let's call it PP for the rest yeah, of great. this interview. So you can just like, you can just take <laughs> okay. out, edit out when I, when I butcher permanganate, just take that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, there are instances where it's it's not used in like these in certain like green washes and like, you know, we'll get into that a little bit later, but the majority of everything that you see and buy, unless it specifically states it's not, has some sort of potassium or PP on it. It's just a chemical that's used to kind of highlight like the sanding and just to kind of make it look like more worn and and more vintage. So you surprised me by telling me that a lot of the new denim that we buy now begins as a vintage sample? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, at least it does for me. A huge part of my design process, and I think a lot of other kind of denim heads in the industry, (laughs) like for lack of a better term, (laughs) denim heads, when you want to make a, a new garment look old, what do you do? Well, you buy an old garment. So, I mean, and that's also part of the reason why I have like 300 pairs of like vintage jeans because like I've like used them for work as well. They're part of my like working collection that I like 
lug with me like to almost every, you know, design (laughs) studio that I end up working at. You know, they come with me and they leave with me. But yeah, like when I'm, you know, designing a new collection or like working on washes, it's like I dig through my archive and, you know, I kind of get a feeling kind of based on like what else we've talked about, like where I think this wash direction should go and, and what different shades it should encompass. And then you kind of start pulling out all of these vintage samples and maybe one pair. I really like the, the kind of like overall like base color of it, you know, just, just the way it like looks and maybe another pair. I like that it has like this certain way that it's kind of been like worn away, like kind of like like sanded or whatever it has the appearance that it's like sanded or that it just looks like really worn and used in certain spots and not in others and I take these pieces along with my freshly sewn raw jeans I take them down to the denim laundry the denim wash house and that's when I start working with a technician on them and then he and I together go through each piece and I point out like the nuances of why I think it's special, like what makes it look like a really unique, special piece so that the technician understands, the wash developer understands what I see. Because if I just sent that garment, that vintage garment down, like it's one thing to start off as a vintage piece and did, and that's great. But if I just sent that down, you know, the developer doesn't really know or or understand like what I think is special or beautiful about it. They're another person. They have completely different perspective and they could be seeing totally different things than what I see. And maybe they think that I really like this overblown thing that's happening and when in actuality I don't. So, you know, for me, it's really important to go down and, and really talk to someone about what, you're, what you like and what your starting point is. And so there's a person whose job it is just to come up with like the wash to achieve what you're asking for. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes even in in the design end of the studio, you know, a lot of denim teams have a have a wash developer and it's their job to take that to work with the designer or the design director. It's their job to, you know, review all of like the, you know, the information with the designer or the design director. And then they, they're the ones that take it down and review it with the wash developer. So it like kind of like transfers through like two people. For me, I have worked at companies that have, you know, an on-site or staff wash developer, and I just prefer to do it myself. I just, (laughs) there's just something about it that's one of the aspects that I really love. So I just feel like the direct approach is always the best for me because like I've been living in that world for 20 years and working with these guys for that long too. So it's like, I already have relationships with them, but yeah, it's like someone's job to to translate that vintage garment onto this fresh, shiny, new, sewn pair of raw denim pants. So you told me that these sort of, I mean, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like new jeans are kind of already broken in by chemicals, right? But but jeans mm-hmm. weren't always that way, right? No, no. So the majority of like all the jeans that, you know, we think of as vintage now – you know, you buy at flea markets or you buy at thrift stores or whatever, like especially like real like vintage, like 501s that have like a red line at the side seam or whatever that's made off of a salvage piece goods. Yeah, like those were never washed or like they were like shrink to fit. So it's like, you know, the customer bought them in a raw stage and then either they put them on and and kind of got in a bathtub full of hot water and they kind of like so like form them to their body, like shrank them to their body, <laughs> or they just kind of like threw them in the wash and they knew that they would shrink a couple inches, like in you know 
width and length. But so all of like the, the true, the wearing in of a vintage piece, like that was mm-hmm. because that person wore it. Like they wore it all the time. They wore it in, you know, they wore it like driving a truck. They wore it doing farm work. They wore it fixing their car. You know, it's like they they wore it and they wore it in. And today that's really not how most of the denim is kind of like bought or consumed. It's like we buy it so that it's like soft and like worn and like feels good against our skin. But that's not how denim was. Denim was like this very like, it, and it still is, it's this very rigid material. And that's like part of the reason why it lasts for as long as it does, especially the 100% cotton types, because like it's made to withstand like the test of time. Like it's really, really well constructed in the sense of a fabric term. I feel like there's a metaphor there for who we've become as a society that we now need our denim to be pre-worn. <laughs> we- <laughs> Like, like just we just like mm, I'm saying to be comfy, yeah. It's like nothing to be healthy. It's so terrible. It's so terrible. When did we start this like transition into we need our jeans to be soft and pre-worn looking? Um, I mean, I would say it would be like the first designer denim phase that kind of hit us in like the early '80s. Vidal Sassoon and Jordache and Calvin Klein and then to a later extent like Z Cavarici, Dittos. They were kind of like the first that and, and then, you know, then probably like Levi's was also following suit, but they were probably the first that weren't using 100% cotton. Maybe they were using blends with poly to like get like a little bit of a softer appearance or texture. But then they were also just kind of running the jeans through like a light stone wash and maybe bleach cycle, you know, so you would have like this like lighter colored denim Mm -hmm. that was achieved through like a, like a stone wash and bleach. And then of course there's the era of acid wash. Like when people think of the eighties, I I think that's what they think of immediately. Immediately. Like immediately, like all, just all acid wash, like all the time. Does stone washing really use stones? It does, yeah. So Stonewash um, uses pumice stones and they, you know, it's like uh, in these industrial laundries, they have these huge metal washing machines and they put the, for samples, like when they're doing a sample run, you know, they put a few pairs in at a time. The machine doesn't hold a very big load and then they put a couple of bucketfuls of stones and then they turn it on and so the and then the you know the water goes in and and it spins and agitates the the stones you know work to beat up and take out the color of the indigo because remember indigo it's not dyed as like a fabric it's dyed at the, at the thread level and so it wraps around the cotton core and so what that means is that it chips off because it's not going all the way through. And then in, then mm-hmm. in the other way that it's woven, you know, when you see that twill line and why you have a white face on the bottom, because that's like the cotton core. So it's like when you add these stones to it, the stones just kind of like chip away at this color. And depending on how long you run the stones for and how abraded you want it, how light you want it, 
is how kind of much of the indigo is going to chip off. You can do other things to make the color go light. You can add bleach. You can add potassium. Each one does different things to the way the color comes down. The cheapest way to make color come down in a garment or in a jean is to just add bleach and very little stone. And then, you know, it's like that kind of always looks really cheap. Because it's like they they kind of took out part of the process, you know, because the the beautiful thing about these stones is that it beats up the fabric. It makes it soft. It brings out any of the characteristics of the fabric it's going to bring out. So you're going to see all of like kind of like the slub and you're going to see like the twill line and all those things. You're going to see um, highs and lows in the seams, you know, where it looks – where colors like kind of trapped in it and it seems like a little bit darker and then a little bit lighter in some areas – like that's all from your stone washing. So that also, you know, with stones, it's like the longer you leave them in, the more time it's running, the more water you're consuming also. So that's another way that, you know, I know we're going to talk about this in a bit, but that's another way where water is being used just in, like a, in a tremendous way is to get these these genes processed. I bet it's really loud too. I mean, if there's like rocks in the washing machine. I- oh God, it's so loud. It's so loud. Like you walk into these into these kind of wash facilities and, you know, they're kind of in these like cavernous warehouses, you know, which have like big open fronts. And they're all in like, like mm-hmm. the, 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 the stone machines are all kind of, you know, you have the production stone machines in one area. You have like your sample machines in another. You have like your dryers in another area. You know, they're all broken up. But yeah, I mean, like you're like yelling. You're not, you're not like having a quiet conversation. You're not like, so like, what do you think? You're like yelling at the person. Like, <laughs> what does this look like? You have to like go. If you want to have like a conversation, you have to like go inside. So when are these different treatments applied? Like, is it... When the fabric is made before the product is sewn or after the the pair of jeans is sewn? Yes. I mean, that's a great question. I think I get this asked a lot. So, you know, <laughs> the typical kind of like life of a jean is the fabric gets woven into the fabric. <laughs> so then you have like your denim fabric. And just like any other fabric, there's 800 million types of different denim fabrics. There's 100% cotton. There's blends, there's lycra blends, there's poly blends, there's Tencel, Modal, like anything you want to put into a gene. I mean, I'm sure they have done it. And that all affects like fabric tensile strength is like what you're doing to it. So let's just say you have a 100% cotton roll of piece goods. From there, you, you have your pattern, you cut it, you sew it, put it all together, and then that's ready to go to the wash house. Before that even takes place though, it's like you need to add shrinkage to the garment. So before we even do like one step of like pattern making, whenever I get in a new fabric, I take a shrinkage square, I send it to the laundry in, you know, three different ways so that I know, okay, this is how it's going to react with bleach. This is how it's going to react when I don't have bleach. And this is what it does when I just rinse it. And that way that helps the pattern maker adjust the pattern. So they add that shrinkage to it so that we don't end up with these like teeny tiny pair of pants that are like useless to us or like Barbie clothes. <laughs> because like otherwise then you're just like wasting like pairs and pairs of jeans because you know what you're doing, which is terrible. Like no one wants to do that. So we, we try not to do that. That's why we do shrinkage. So, <laughs> and they do that again in production. They, they do that to every single production role so that, you know, we're not, again, being wasteful. So you have your your raw pair of jeans is what I call it. 
And then you take that to the wash house. Again, I take it with my, my vintage sample and I work over everything with the wash developer. I tell them exactly what I want, like what I hate uh-huh. about the, you know, if there's something I really hate about the vintage sample I brought in, like maybe it has stains on it. Like I don't want these stains. They're gross and ugly. Then maybe we'll, we'll tape off stuff on the sample and, you know, or maybe there needs to be more of hand sanding or less. And so, you know, you make all these notes. And then from there, the developer's like, great, cool. I got you. I'm going to go work on these. (laughs) And he takes them in the back and that's where kind of like all the work starts. And so this is part of the process where it gets really expensive, especially if you're producing in the United States. And especially if you're producing in a city like LA. Yeah, I bet. You know, from here, it's like all of the dry process and the wet process start. So dry process is anything that's like hand sanding. After the hand sanding, you know, they usually hit it with like the the potassium just to kind of pop that hand sanding. Then from there, you go in and they do all the what's called the wet processing where they put it in with like the stones. They add the bleach if it needs the bleach. All that stuff happens. And then if it's like a really destructed garment and it's like a high quality destructive garment, then they'll kind of like put it in the dryer and then they'll pull it out and then they're kind of, they'll go in and they'll fine, fine tune it. They'll finesse it. So like all of those like holes that look really natural on, on really expensive jeans, this is where it happens. And it happens at this stage because they've pulled it out. They're going to go in with like all of their tools and they're going to add grinding to the pocket scoops or they're going to add holes or like little like wear marks that are that look like they're almost holes, like you got caught on a fence or something. And they do that at this stage instead of before or after because now they're just going to send it through like a really minimal like rinse, not anything aggressive. If they had done it in the beginning, but before they put the garment through stone, it would have blown it out and it would have been like really, really aggressive. They do it in the middle stage, although it's more expensive because it's easier to control and they get that more nuanced, like fine-tuned look. They could do it in the very end stage, like when everything is done, but then it looks like um, incomplete. And there's for sure garments that I've seen on the market that are like this, that are, that they've absolutely done in the very end stage where they didn't kind of throw it back into the washer. Like, well, why wouldn't they throw it back into the washer? It seems so simple. You're right. It is. It's also more time Mm -hmm. and it's more expensive because of that time. And because it takes someone to take their, you know, physically take it, put it in the washer and then, you know, time it and then take it out and dry it again. And so, you know, it's like each of these steps costs money. And that's where it really adds up when you're talking about the cost of a, of a washed garment. Like every time someone touches that garment, it costs money. And it seems like, I mean, now that you're talking this through, I can, I'm can i starting to see why expensive jeans are so expensive because yeah. there's so many times they're being touched by a human and so much work yeah. is happening. You know, and a lot of people kind of have the misconception that it's just like really easy to make this stuff happen. And, and it's not the people that do this for a living. It's you kind of have to view them as like artisans because it's really easy to mess this up. I mean, like I've done it. You can go too hard on the sanding. You can go too, uh, too much on any of the chemicals. You know, it's like they really have to have an eye and they have to have like a really good trained eye and they have to have like a really good sense of like what they're doing and their understanding of how that product is supposed to look. So, you know, they're highly trained, highly skilled people that are working on these jeans. And, you know, and that again is 
is why they cost more money because you're paying for a much higher skilled labor market. So what about, this is something I've seen at market a lot the past couple falls, like coded denim. Like what is it coded with? Oh, Jesus, like the bane of my existence. Oh God, I hate it too. I think it's so gross. It makes me think of wax, like wax paper. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's got this weird <laughs> feeling when you touch it, but people, people love coated denim. I know. I know. I just. What's it coated with? Like, and is, is that happening when they make the fabric or I guess it's probably happening after they sew the garment, right? It's both actually. It, it happens at both stages. It just depends on like your okay. final look. I've been working with coatings for like 15 years and they're so hard to get right. And like, I guarantee that anything that ends up at consumer level, that whoever designed it is mm-hmm. not happy with it. <laughs> like, like no matter how great you think it is, like it probably looked like <laughs> way different to them when they were like, uh, when they were coming up with it, when they were initially working on it, when they got it at a sample phase, like mm-hmm. it's really unpredictable and it's a really, really unreliable <laughs> process. It's a little bit more reliable when you do it in the fabric form, when they just like coat it and they, you know, it's like, and honestly, like I am not 100% sure what they coat it with. I mean, it could be like polyurethane. Sometimes it's like pigment, like a color pigment. Sometimes that pigment is meant to be chipped off. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's meant to be glossy. Sometimes it's meant to be matte. There's just like 800 ways to go with it. At the end Mm -hmm. of the day, it's like whatever your base goods are. So if you have like these like soft, silky base goods, like you're going to come out with like the best results because it's going to yield like Mm -hmm. a softer hand. If you put it on something that's like not soft, it's just going to feel like armor, which it does a lot of times anyways. Yeah, it's so gross. It's so gross. I I hate it. I've seen it executed across all price points, so from like cheap to really expensive. And it's universally disgusting feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It just – it's just sticky – yeah, yeah, like, unbreathable for sure. Unbreathable, like, uh, like yeah. yeah. And I, I feel like it's like it's supposed to compare to like, like visually, leather. like to leather, right? I'm going to when I edit this episode, do some digging and figuring out what the most common coating is, but it's definitely something like plastic, polyurethane. It's gross. Yes, I, for sure. It's not healthy. It's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for the people that are spraying it. After the jean is washed, they spray it on. So that's why you can see, like, if you look at, like, the pockets and stuff, there's, like, a different color. Like, if you look, at, like, inside the pocket facing, like, mm-hmm. that's why. Because it's, like, because basically they put it on um, these inflatable mannequins, which is also how they do, like, any sort of sanding or anything like that. They put it on these inflatable mannequins the garment, they inflate the mannequin up and then they spray this like plastic gunk on it. And you can spray it and there's like colors you can spray it. You know, you can spray black, you can spray blue, green, like whatever, purple, like just your heart's desire. I mean, I think you can tell like my disdain. It's just, it's, and it's something like every fall you have to work on. It's like, even though like, you know, it's just going to be a problem. It's going to be an issue. I know, I know. And every year, someone, some sales rep will be like, this is the hot new thing. And I'm always like, it's been hot new thing since like 2003. Like, I don't hear it. Like, why are we still doing this? Like, I don't. Like, like you put them on and like you're you're just, you can't breathe. You just feel sweaty. But yeah, I mean, like I see the guys that are like spraying this stuff on and, you know, it's like they're in like gas masks. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think that these these coated jeans 
even when they're really expensive, they smell like chemicals. No, like there's there's times that I've like I've got them in shipments from like China and they smell like gasoline. And like you can't you cannot get like the smell out. Yeah, and just exactly. Like, like I can't like you just like you want to like kind of like throw up. And the poor fit model is like trying them on. She's like, this smells really bad. And I'm like, I know I'm really sorry. She's like, I don't like it. And I'm like, I know I don't either. I was working for a brand and the owner really wants, she had this like vision of a white coated jean. Okay. I already hate these. I already hate them. And as much as I tried to say, like, listen, like white is like very, very difficult pigment to work with because like you're, you're covering indigo and it's like a pigment. And so <laughs> it like attracts like right. dirt and and then it's like sticky and it's just gonna I'm like you see where this is going and it just it it still had to go on so you know I went through like multiple tests and I'm I'm like my developers were like you're crazy like this is going to be terrible I'm like I know I'm sorry can you please just do it and you know they did even though they're just like I don't know why I'm doing this like you're never in a million years gonna place this order Uh I'm like I know I'm just, I just have to, just have to work through it. Sometimes we all have to do things we don't want to do. Like every time I'd kind of come back to the the drawing board and, you know, she wouldn't like it and she'd like send it back and she'd want it like more coated, more coated <laughs> because it's like, the problem is, it's like you're spraying white pigment over indigo. It's not um, opaque yeah. and she wanted it opaque and it just, it's really difficult to get that way. And so like the only way I could get it that way was, I mean, for it to essentially just look like, like you painted it with like painter's paint, like latex house paint. And I got the things and they were like so stiff and so crazy and so bananas. And like my, my developer, like he handed it to me and he just laughed. He just started laughing at me. He's like, he's like, well, this is opaque. And I'm like, sure is. And he's like, what do you, what do you think? And I'm like, oh God, this is terrible. I'm like, I can't, oh God, I have to like, and like I had to like fly and like present them to like a like a sales meeting with them, and I was just like, oh god! It's I, and then like I'm you know I'm the director, and I'm just gonna look like just oh. a crazy person. It was just one of those things where you're asked to do something that's entirely insane. And even though I knew it wasn't going to work, and I knew it was going to work for like all of these reasons, I still had to go through the motions, and it yielded a ton of samples that were unusable it yielded a truly terrible like abomination of denim that just should never have happened (laughs) i mean like the things could like stand up on on their own and we're talking about like like a women's company like no like you never do that like we're you know women all you know it's like we like soft like it's all about like soft like pretty like no these are like crazy like they weighed like 800 pounds like it was just like the worst coded experience I ever had. And I've had so many. And that was like the icing on the cake. And I was just like, never again am I ever doing ever any coding ever. And um, I haven't. Just imagine how bad those would have worn. Like if somebody, they had actually made it to the line and people had actually bought them. I mean, you would like <sighs> rub up against like getting into your car and suddenly you'd have like a stripe of blue just be so gross. Oh, it was so gross. And like they like they didn't breathe. Like you put them on uh, and just you're wearing you're wearing paint. Yeah, it's at the super, end of the day. Super gross. It's just gross. It was so gross. It was I think, the worst experience. I mean, what I like about this is it kind of shows 
for all the stuff you see out on the market that you can buy that seems like a bad idea or that you hate or whatever, 5,000 other things went on behind the scenes that fortunately got dropped that were even a worse oh, yeah. nightmare, a worse nightmare. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's also the the chance that like whatever you are seeing is also a mistake. <laughs> and like it, it, it was kind of like, oh, well, I guess that we kind of <laughs> are stuck with this and we have to sell this now. Okay, cool. And sometimes it's a happy accident and it, and it still looks great, even though it wasn't what you wanted. And sometimes, you know, you don't really have any choice but to but to send it on out anyways. Making clothes isn't an exact science. And especially when it comes to denim, because mm-hmm. there's so many variables in it. There's variables in the fabrics. There's variables in the wash. You know, sometimes things just do weird things and like you don't have any explanation for it and you can't figure it out. And, you know, you're left to kind of try to put back together the pieces. So it's real fun. <laughs> okay. So now I'm going to ask you a question that's always bothered me, which is why if you go buy a pair of like black jeans, why do they turn your legs black? Please explain this to me. Like black for months on end. (laughs) Like your legs are like a weird blue black. It's so gross. And it rubs off on your hands, Mm -hmm. your other clothes you're wearing, maybe your Mm -hmm. desk chair at work. Like why is that happening? Your car seats, your white t-shirt. Your bag, your bag that was like rubbing up totally, yeah, yeah, like your pretty tan bag is now exactly black exactly. or blue in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, so that's what's commonly called crocking. Crocking exists pretty much in, like, I'd say like a lot of of both denim and and specifically, you know, fabrics that are dyed black to varying degrees. Sometimes it only exists when it's like in its raw state and sometimes it exists even after it's been processed and you know you you're just like why is this like this has been washed? I don't understand. Like why is it still like leaking essentially? So what that is is like it's like the fabric isn't fixed properly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like especially when you're talking about like black and especially when it's like kind of like a black on black right. like piece goods meaning there's black in the warp and black in the weft so that when you flip it, there's no white on the interior. Right, right. That usually has a higher percentage of like crocking. And it basically just means that the manufacturer didn't fix it properly at the at the beginning stage, like at the dying end. They cut some corner and they just didn't do what they were supposed to do. Or maybe that's just, it's cheap and they did what they were supposed to do. And they're like, yeah, if you wanted fabric that didn't crock, you have to buy the more expensive one. So when you talk about fixing it, you're talking about like another wash cycle, right? Like a dye fixative or something? Yeah. It depends on like what stage. Because like at the fabric stage, like it goes, like especially if it's like a like a color like black it goes through like this like chemical process where it like fixes like it it binds it that's I guess that's a better word it binds the color to the fabric you know it goes through dye process and then it like binds it all together so that it shouldn't explode Mm -hmm. onto you which it you know does when it's not done properly or you know like I said you know, all that stuff costs money. So, you know, if you want something that doesn't do that, then like you have to really kind of make that a priority as kind of a designer or in the product development stage, depending on who's handling that kind of stuff, you know, and across the industry, there's there's different ways that companies are structured. So sometimes it's like the designer or the design team or the director's responsibility to make sure that that's not happening just through like their own basic knowledge. Like you're, you're asking these questions, like, does this crock? Does this fix? A lot of times, like I would take like a white piece of paper and I would like rub it on the fabric 
before and after wash. And if it came up like, you know, with color on it, then I would know that there's like an issue and I would bring it up. You know, a lot of times I would do it in the sales meeting, you know, Mm -hmm. when I'm with the fabric salesperson, because I just want to see. It's just like kind of about like the team being educated. And sometimes that's on your Mm -hmm. product development team's kind of shoulders. And then they're the ones that have to kind of like go in and deal with it and like fight about it. And it's like a whole bunch of fun for anyone that's doing it. And then there's also stuff where it's when the fabric is uh, prepare for dye or garment dye, that's actually done at the garment stage. So it's like you basically have like an undyed piece goods, you cut and sew the garment out of it. And then once it's cut and sewn and put together as like a jean, it goes into, you know, a really fancy writ dye, (laughs) essentially. And for like lack of a better term, like, you know, it's like you're, you're dying it. And so if they're not fixing it properly on that end, it can happen as well. I find that it happens less on that end. It still happens occasionally, but it's usually the, the fabric that does it, that, that it's just not properly bound together with color. So you might see that on like a cheaper fabric because I have only yeah. experienced this with like cheaper jeans. Yeah, you know? yeah, and it's yeah. not it's not only black; it's it's indigo too. Mm-hmm. Or like there's a, there's this other thing that's called redeposition or redep for short, and it's basically like especially in indigo because when you're washing it, you know the color. You know, like I said, indigo chips the color comes off, right? Like when you're doing these big industrial washes. But what redeposition is is the color doesn't get cleaned and like sucked out, and it basically redeposits back onto the garment. And then you can always tell that because your pocket bags are kind of tinted like blue. And then, you know, like the back of the denim, like where it should be white, kind of looks like dingy and like a little bit blue. Like in bad cases of redeposition, it looks like really blue. But there you can also find crocking. That's like my pet peeve about denim, I think, is I know. when I take off my pants and like my butt's blue. <laughs> It's so oh, good. Like it's so terrible. I remember like, I had like these pants from, I don't know, was it like the Gap or like H&M or something? And I loved them. They were like really dark and like, you know, they look like rigid indigo. Like they'd never been like washed or worn. I mean, they, they'd been washed, but they didn't look like it, which is why I love them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, good God, they turned to everything blue. Like every single thing that I owned was blue. Like my car seats were blue. My office chair was blue. My brown bag was blue. My white underwear was blue. My white (laughs) t-shirts were blue. Mm -hmm. Like everything was blue. I definitely am having this like very visceral memory of being at work (laughs) and realizing that my face had turned blue from touching my pants and then touching my face. Oh, my God. feeling so gross. Um, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I've had blue face like all the time just from being surrounded by like denim. And I'm like always like touching it and then like, yeah. touching my face. And the times before COVID when we could touch our faces yeah. without and, fear. And that we could have a, a blue face without anyone thinking we were like a disease vector. Because now people would be like, oh right. my God, we got to check your oxygenation levels. Yes, yeah, you're obviously like really off. I yeah. know, yeah. Hi, it's me again. Let's get to the bottom of coated denim. What is it? Okay, first things first. The coating on coated denim is made of a combination of pigment and either acrylic or polyurethane. In other words, petrochemicals. Petrochemicals are derived from oil, from fossil fuels. 
coated denim does not allow the skin to breathe, which can make it feel warmer. But in a strange, my skin is suffocating kind of way. I mean, you can imagine, right? Like trash bags are made of petrochemicals too. So it's like a very similar non-breathable chemical coating. In general, I would advise people to pass on coated denim. Why? Well, for one, I really try to avoid the amount of petrochemicals just sitting on my body. Like, There's no lining separating you from the coating on denim, whereas at least on a faux leather jacket, which is also made of petrochemicals, at least there's a lining. And I just... I feel very sensitive about the absorption of petrochemicals, plastics, et cetera, into my body. I mean, I feel that the science on that is just beginning to take off, and it's been bad news across the board. So why not protect yourself as much as you can, right? Secondly, I just don't think coated denim has much longevity, both from a trend standpoint and the actual life of the garment. It's very difficult to clean. When I was Googling about coated denim, I found practically an infinite number of articles and advice columns that were addressing this concern. It's just so hard to clean what to do. Any exposure to heat, whether hot water, the steam tunnel at a dry cleaner or the dryer will completely remove the coating. And so really your only cleaning options there are hand washing, which is not perfect either, or dry cleaning, but it has to be a special kind of dry cleaning. And one article even suggested that you take the pants in and have a face-to-face conversation with a lot of eye contact with the person working at the dry cleaner to ensure that the coating was not removed from these jeans. And it's just like so crazy to me. (laughs) Furthermore, the coating itself is very easily scratched and chipped in day-to-day life. It's strange. It's not a lifelong coating, even though if you threw this in the landfill, it would take hundreds of years to break down. It's so ironic to me, right? I mean, if you throw these jeans in the trash, the coating will ensure that they sit in that landfill for a long, 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 long time. But yet, if you scraped against your car door getting out, it's ruined, right? (laughs) It's so interesting to me. It's like both fragile yet eternal. Once again, that's just my advice here. If you already have a pair of coated jeans, hey, that's okay. Guess what? You got them. Take the best care you can of them. Make sure you can wear them for as long as possible, wear them as much as possible. And you know what? If you're over it, pass them on to a good home. There's someone else out there who is totally excited about trying out some coated denim. Maybe we all go in on one pair that we just pass around and then that way we all get a chance to try it out without making more coated denim. Someone should create an app for that. (laughs) I mean, there are other things we could share too, like all these crazy trendy things. That's a really good idea actually. So Something that Michelle said during this half of the conversation has been sitting with me since we recorded it weeks ago. Am I profiting off of someone else's misery? As I've been digging deeper and deeper into the fashion industry week after week, I have found myself realizing that all of us are profiting off of someone else's misery. And it's, I mean, it's an understatement to say it's a painful pill to swallow. We, the customers, profit in that we can constantly buy new, 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 new stuff because clothes are cheaper than ever. The fast fashion industry profits in an even larger way, right? Because they're selling us more stuff than ever while making more profit than ever, despite these clothes being cheaper than ever. The workers across the world who touch our clothing are suffering, Internationally, I'm talking about the people working in the factories and the dye houses and the people living near those facilities as well. 
Domestically, I'm talking about the humans packing our orders and working in the retail stores. Do they make a living wage? Nope. Do they have access to healthcare, good food, education, safe spaces? Probably not. The fashion industry thrives off of our classism and racism. I always say that classism and racism are close cousins because they are tangled up in people's biases and behaviors. Like they're almost inseparable. Even the most diehard racist will still somewhat accept a wealthy black person in their social circle. Sure, they'll say shitty things behind that person's back, but they'll respect the money. Poor white people will hate poor black people, but still respect the Obamas for being classy and educated. I would even say that some more privileged, wealthy white people think that they are educated beyond racism simply because they're more privileged and therefore it's okay to make racist jokes because they must be jokes, right? I think about that a lot when I was reading about all the weird stuff that was going on with Jen Gotch at Bandeau and the weird racist stuff she was saying. In this mindset, only poor white people are actually racist because they're too backwards and uneducated to become anything other than racist. Does that kind of thinking sound familiar to you? I mean, that's classism. I read a Fast Company article this week that has really stuck with me. I'll share it with you in the episode notes. It's not that long, unless you want to read the study associated with it. Then it's mega long, but fascinating. A series of 18 studies out of Princeton University show that people consistently perceive poorer individuals as more, quote, hardened to life due to their assumed prior challenges and therefore emotionally, quote, thicker skinned. It's this highly misguided yet remarkably pervasive belief that poor people are somehow happier with less as well as better equipped to handle distress. I mean, I I was being laid off from a job once and my boss said to me, you faced so much adversity and tough times in your life. This is probably no big deal to you. Uh, yeah, feeding my kid is a pretty big deal to me. <laughs> One of the most disturbing aspects of this study was that This belief extended across all groups of people surveyed, whether they were black, white, Asian, Latino, and across professions, including those that deal directly with low-income groups in areas like mental health, education, etc. Researchers say that this bias leads to providing less resources to the poor, even though they should be receiving even more compassionate aid. And conversely, and this part just really grinds my gears, more privileged individuals are receiving additional care and concern because there's a belief that these people are ill-equipped to handle suffering. As if suffering is something you're equipped to handle. It's not like you build up experience in suffering and you get like really good at it. (laughs) The idea that poorer people have thicker skin is preposterous, in case you weren't already thinking that I thought that. The reality is that being poor is hard in every, every, every way. Healthcare is weaker, education is lesser, and accomplishing even the most minor thing is like 10 times more difficult. Like, let's say you don't have a car and the nearest grocery store is a couple of miles away. This is an incredibly common example in poorer communities. So, You can take the bus to the store if you have the fare, but you'll be limited to what you can carry home. So forget about one big trip every week or two. You're looking at a trip every few days, maybe even more often if you need diapers or pet food. This trip will take significantly longer each time because the bus moves more slowly. It stops a lot. You have to wait for it. What might have been a 45-minute trip in total with a car, that would include the shopping, 
turns into two hours, maybe even three. That's an hour or two less for cleaning the house, helping with homework, cooking meals, everything. And that's in a slightly more privileged situation in which, one, there's a bus that will take you directly to the store, which doesn't exist in more rural areas and even in a lot of metropolitan areas. And two, you have to be able to afford the bus fare. That's tough when you have children, so you're paying for multiple tickets. And you're making minimum wage, I mean, or even less. It's, it's just impossible. When my daughter was very small and I was making just above the minimum wage, taking the bus one way cost as much as I made from working an hour after I deducted taxes and childcare. I mean, it was it was like a luxury. So we traveled by bicycle. And it's crazy now to think about hauling my daughter around on my bike with a bag of diapers hanging off one handlebar and some groceries off the other. But that's how we lived. That's how we could get stuff done. It was exhausting, dangerous, and so miserable in the rainy weather. Did it make me tougher? I don't think so. But it did make me more prone to entire winters full of bronchitis. Chronic stress, fear, and exhaustion do not make you tougher. They actually make you more in need of compassion and care because they make you more vulnerable physically, emotionally, and economically. Ultimately, this bias that poor people are tougher, thicker-skinned, it prevents everyone else from truly seeing and caring about the suffering of those in lower socioeconomic situation. And that includes the people making our clothes overseas for pennies, the women in LA sewing for three cents a piece, the warehouse workers working on their feet all day with no hazard pay, no benefits, the retail workers forced to put themselves in harm's way just so we can buy jeans and eyebrow pencils. I had a coworker once say, I've seen the children that work in factories in Asia and they are glad to have the jobs. They are excited to get a chance to work. And yeah, I guess we all are if we have to choose between starving or working. But shouldn't all children have a chance to play and learn? Shouldn't all adults have the opportunity to feel safe, healthy, and content to have hobbies and friends and exciting experiences? If we know people are getting sick and dying, of losing their fertility because they're making genes for us, Shouldn't we reevaluate where we buy our jeans? And shouldn't we push for brands to change their ways? In our next episode, we'll talk more about the technology out there that makes denim less destructive to our world. In fact, the world of denim holds the most promise in terms of sustainability. It's really exciting. Like the technology is already there. It just needs to become more widespread. As individuals, we can use our money to push for changes in the industry because that's that's where it's going to come from. It's going to come from us. Your money is as powerful as your vote and every purchase is political. Thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you want to contribute to the conversation, send me an email at closehorsepodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to be starting an advice segment in our next episode. Basically, you listeners can ask me for advice about your shopping and clothing quandaries or even just ask questions about the biz. I know I'm not answering all the questions that are out there, so, you know, put me to use. I want to help you make the best decisions. Thank you to my friend Jillian for making this suggestion. I'm really excited about it. I love giving advice. (laughs) We have a website now. And you can stream all of our episodes there. It's closehorsepodcast.com. And of course, you'll find us on Instagram at closehorsepodcast. If you like what you're hearing, please share with a friend. Let's spread the word, you know? As Barney famously said, sharing means caring. 
please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. This pushes us up the charts and into the ears of new listeners. Extra special super thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. He also took really good care of me this week when a brutal case of food poisoning had me throwing up all over our bedroom and our hallway. Dustin, you are a prince, and I am lucky to have you in my life. Thank you for straining the pulp out of my coconut water. Bye.